Hi, it's Mark Sisson. Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast, where we deliver a variety of fresh content to help you live awesome. Enjoy the show. Engage with us online at marksdailyapple.com and on social media, and send your questions to info at primalblueprint.com. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast. Today, we have a special guest, Dr. Mona Morstein a naturopathic physician and diabetes expert. She's written an incredible book, number one on Amazon and diabetes, called Master Your Diabetes, a comprehensive integrative approach to type 1 and type 2. It's an extremely detailed look at various diets, drugs, uh, and other integrative approaches and hacks to get a handle on this disease and essentially master it. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Al. I'm, I'm glad to be here. So let's get started with what inspired you to even be passionate and get passionate about this subject? Well, it's a good question, and the answer is a little awkward and embarrassing, but when I was a very, very new doc, fresh out of medical school, I actually missed the diagnosis of a type 2 patient having kind of an acute onset, a serious acute onset, and of course, missing any patient is a huge shock and to one's ego, but also to one's wondering if, you know, is one, am I a good doctor? You know, am I safe and responsible in treating patients? And after that happened, I, I really committed myself to learning everything there was to know about diabetes and to never miss another patient and to really be good at treating it. And so that's what developed over the years. That's incredible. I love that you took something that was sort of a personal professional, seemingly a, a failure. And, and you said, no, let, let me get behind this. That is so at the root of what we try to push on this show in terms of trying to find a doctor who's still excited and interested to solve the problem and admit when they might not know something. So I, I really commend you for that. I want to say, um, cause I want to, we're going to start off with some statistics, but I just want to say this while reading your book, you know, there's obviously sections very detailed on injectable insulin type medications, et cetera, for various scenarios. And I honestly almost fainted thinking about that as a reality because, because I was pre-diabetic and I need to just say that, you know, other than type one diabetics who might not be able to turn that around completely, all of us can strive to prevent type two. And if you already got it and you're already on insulin, there is still hope for you to reverse it. Um, of course, with your doctor and diet. But, you know, what's interesting here is that from from a human being's perspective, and I've spoken with Mark Sisson about this, which is it's really a difficult road once you get down into introducing exogenous hormones. And there's lots of mistakes being that can be made because we have human brains, right? And we'd love it if our endocrine system would work the way it was designed to. Sometimes it can't, and we have to take over. And that's where your book is really helpful because this is like the essential biohacking with diabetes if you, you know, on every level. But in saying that, so want to just give everyone hope right off the bat, but also let's talk about statistics because this is a disgusting epidemic. So give us a picture of what this looks like. Well, it's not pretty. You're right. Right now, we have about 30 million people with diabetes, and we have around 90 million people with prediabetes, which essentially means in America, one out of every three people are either prediabetic or diabetic. Um, You know, by 2040, if we don't get this under control, it could be that, you know, one out of every three person is a diabetic patient. And for certain high risk 
population, such as Hispanic and and uh, Pacific Islanders. Um, it could be even one out of every two. Uh, worldwide, we're not really doing any better. There's 300 million people with diabetes right now, and this is uh, continuing to grow uh, exponentially as well. Let's talk about uh, type 1 diabetes for starters, because I always see that as an autoimmune disorder. Um, I always see it as something that can't be fully corrected, but only managed. Can you define it for us in layman's terms and explain to us what type 1 diabetes is? Yeah, type 1 diabetes essentially does mean that there was an autoimmune reaction against pancreatic beta cells. And those are the cells in the body that produce insulin. Uh, and generally, the we, of course, think of this a lot as our kids, and we do have pediatric type 1. That happens from generally ages over 1 to about 25. Uh, and But we also see another kind of type 1 called latent autoimmune diabetes of the adult, LADA, uh, occur in older patients, ages, say, it, it, you know, roughly 35 and above. Uh, which, and those patients are enormously misdiagnosed as uh, type 2 oftentimes. But they're, but really, so we have these two populations that have this. And generally, certainly with the kids, even though they can be on, um, even though they can be on a honeymoon for a long time, sometimes up to years, invariably they're going to need to wind up on insulin. Um, the, the type 1 adults also can go a long time, sometimes needing just a little insulin, but eventually oftentimes they will require insulin, you know, all, you know, the both types of it as well. So in keeping with type one, both types, I guess, is it inevitable? Is it just, you know, it's only a matter of time before your pancreas fails. Has there ever been a scenario where someone's been able to keep that at bay? Um, from happening, or is type one just one of those things? Um, well, as I said, we have been able to, with kids, have some kids have honeymoon periods. I've I've worked with kids who had honeymoon periods. You know, it's interesting that can go from days to weeks, but even years. Um, so it's a very individual phenomenon with each child how long the honeymoon period lasts. Um, a certain low carb diets will give longer, uh, longer honeymoons in general. Um, but you just don't know. It's kind of an iffy thing. And we just watch each child and see how it goes. So with type one diabetics that are injecting insulin, I'm assuming, you know, like I mentioned earlier, a big theme with anyone injecting insulin is mismanagement, misgagement of food, blood glucose, when and where and how much, right? I mean, that's got to be a very confusing thing for someone who's starting along that path. Uh, well, I mean, all patients with diabetes kind of have to be checking their blood sugars and watching what they eat, both carbs and proteins. And if they're on insulin, you know, they have to be taught how to inject for meals how to correct if it goes high 
And then there's another kind of insulin that's called basal, which uh, deals with glucose that's created in between meals um, during sleep and so forth. So it is a lot of stuff. And uh, it works best, I think, but I'm biased to have an integrative doc who really knows how to put it together in the best ways for patients. Well, right. And on that note, let's talk about diet for a second, because you mentioned a variety of different, you know, alternatives, uh, different ways of doing things there. But, you know, the general theme, right, of us being an over-carbohydrate dependent nation and this leading to type 2 diabetes, it certainly doesn't help when the, for example, the Pacific Diabetes Organization you know, they post, you know, the government food pyramid as here's what you should do to prevent diabetes. And it happens to be a diabetes making diet. You know, there's so much confusion and it's coming from the government. It's kind of tough to not end up in this place. Um, not necessarily with type one, but, but type two, let's talk about type two, because, you know, on this show, we talk a lot about how it really is kind of a condition and in it unbeknownst to most people, we give it to ourselves. Um, Sometimes we know we're giving it to ourselves. Someone could be obese and have a food eating disorder, of course, and then they might know that they're kind of heading in that direction. But there's also athletes who are very thin and fit who have become pre-diabetic as well because they continually tap the pancreas with high carbohydrate diets. So, you know, it, it's it's not a picture of, oh, you have diabetes, you're fat, right? This is this is kind of affects everybody. That's why it is an epidemic. So can you define to all of us what type two diabetes is um, and how it differs from type one? Yeah, I mean, the disease of type two diabetes is insulin resistance, where these patients, at least early on, are definitely able to produce insulin, but for a variety of reasons, the cells that respond to insulin uh, as a signal to take blood glucose out of the serum and put it in the cells and store it, they're no longer listening. Uh, and so they don't take the blood sugar in. And as it gets higher in the serum, at, we just keep monitoring that number. And when it reaches a certain one, which is above 125, we say you have diabetes. When it's above 100 fasting, we say you have prediabetes. Um, so uh, you know, not that I agree that having a 99 is a good number, you know, right. uh, either. But um, so this is now insulin resistance is caused by a number of different factors. Um, and obviously uh, being overweight, uh, especially with abdominal uh, adiposity, uh, you know, it's that fat in the gut um, but And also nutrient deficiencies, which can come with eating a bad diet, um, or we also have lack of exercise, we have uh, changes in the gut microbiome, uh, we have eating just poorly and foods that do cause weight gain. We also have environmental toxins. Persistent organic pollutants are actually now known as obesogens and diabetogens because they have scientifically been proved to initiate insulin resistance. So there, I mean, so there's so many factors when we're talking to patients. We're trying to kind of go through all of them and see which are really the most pertinent to, to each patient. 
Right. And on that note, too, you know, a couple of other connections that are related to this, you know, um, most people know I wrote the paleothyroid solution, but, you know, people who have undiagnosed hypothyroidism and they're in become insulin resistant quite easily. And then that can lead to other problems. So it's very important for people who've come off of years of being undiagnosed and maybe they're now they're treated, they still may behind the scenes have gathered some insulin resistance and, and might need to clean that up and, and take that approach um, even though they might be feeling better. And again, yeah, the gut is very important, throws off so many things. Uh, I, you... I would say one other thing is yeah. uh, don't forget that insulin resistance can also decrease the production of thyroxine. So it can actually lead to uh, some hypothyroidism. Uh, so it goes, uh, right. you know, both ways. And I think, right. of course, if you look, read my book also, if you're, if you're sleeping badly, you can have a higher risk of developing sure. insulin. So many factors go, you know, going on right. uh, for sure. Especially connected to the adrenals, right? You get over adrenalized and excess cortisol. It screws with blood glucose, thyroid, everything. I mean, this is why an integrative approach is the only way yes. to, to, to right. grapple on this. What's something that you feel has been misunderstood with um, either category of diabetes that you really want to get out to the public? What is the biggest issue moving forward if you think you have this? I think, well, you know, I formed a uh, 501c3 non-education nonprofit called Low Carb Diabetes at lowcarbdiabetes.org. And I think that one of the main problems for sure is, you know, the, is the American Diabetes Association not embracing a low carb diet. Uh, you know, let's that, talk about that. What, you know, yeah. that makes no sense. That makes yeah. no medical sense. We all know it. We're calling BS on it. What is it? Is it really just again, shoddy politics, lobbyists and all of that junk that led to the food pyramid to begin with? What is behind that? That sounds insane to me. Well, I think, I know, I think the history, you know, if we go back, the American Diabetes Association was formed 75 years ago. And uh, so that's, you know, when, when they started doing autopsies on patients with diabetes who died, and of course they invariably died of a heart attack or stroke, they found a lot of cholesterol clogging their arteries. And so at that time, it made sense for the ADA to say, wow, you know, it really looks like fats and cholesterol are problematic for people with diabetes and they should have a lower fat, higher carb um, diet. And that may have fit the uh, science at the time, who knows, but certainly at this point in time, there's just no connection to that. And we now know- well, Why haven't they changed? Why haven't they changed and updated? All of you out there that are progressive doctors in the medical community- you guys get it. You've done the extra research. Even Time Magazine had Eat Butter. Everything we knew about fat was wrong on their cover a couple of years ago. So what is taking the Diabetes Association so damn long to get around to this? Well, I think it's because they're almost all their funding is from pharmaceutical companies. You know, the least amount of sponsorship that the ADA will afford or allow is a hundred thousand dollars. And of course, mostly drug companies have, you know, a hundred thousand dollars and above to, you know, to donate to people, you know, to organizations. And I think therefore, you know, they've got just in general, um, very pay to play. And that's just such a disappointment yeah. because in this game, it's involving lives. 
right? It's not just involving a pay to play for a favor or for other things that literally is involving people's lives. Um, and that's why it's even more important that people who are seeing conventional HMO doctors and not that they can't, some of them can't be great. Uh, but knowing what we know about uninformed doctors who follow these rules and who also like, as you know, don't know, and weren't taught about nutrition properly. Um, you know, you've got to go outside of that arena to find the right doc. I, you know, I do think I am, I'm a naturopathic physician and I do have a bias at naturopathic or well, well-trained integrative physicians, you know, are going to be able to not only, mm, not only have a bigger picture L, but also have the time to work with patients. Remember in, I think we have a lot of MDs and conventional care that, also care deeply. But if you've got eight minutes and 40 patients a day, you know, you can't work as well. And you're only allowed to treat one thing at a time. You know, I can spend 30 to 60 minutes with patients, you know, and really give good comprehensive care. So it's also just the way conventional medicine is set up. Uh, that the short office visits, right? So uh, it's interesting. How, how, what would you say are some off the bat without getting into, you know, the exact protocol, but what are some things if people are listening that have, uh, have it uh, or no loved ones with type one or type two, what are some integrative hacks and approaches, things that they might want to look into, whether that be a certain supplement or certain foods? I mean, we clearly know the high fat, moderate protein, low carb paradigm is certainly in line there, but what are some other things people might need to take a look at? Well, I think that is the big thing that we don't want to just, you know, skip over. You're, you're right. But getting people to make that change and, and understand how that low carb diet can be enjoyable and tasty and fit into their socialization, you know, with friends and families and eating out. I think that's a really important thing. So people enjoy the diet and feel positive about it because that helps their health and also helps them commit longer to it. Obviously so much advertising and, 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 uh, you know, food information is the exact opposite of what we're trying to get people to change, to follow. But that is the core. If we don't have that the low carb diet as the foundational treatment, we won't have success in all the other modalities, you know, which synergistically can make it really work great with the low carb diet. Um, you know, this, right. Yeah. You can, you can treat someone with, you know, high doses of vitamin C for anti-inflammation, but if they're eating a high carb diet, they're inflaming themselves. You're canceling everything out. Right. I, I totally understand having the, the proper baseline to receive the integrative approaches. And that baseline is mouth to anus for everyone that's involved in this. That's the only willpower you have. It's you and what you choose to put in your mouth. Um, let's talk about low carb for a minute. You know, there's so many, we at the primal blueprint always say, Hey, just to start off the bat, if you're just someone new to this whole thing, you really need to, in, unless you're a bricklayer or a professional basketball player, you don't eat over 150 grams of carbs a day. And if you're a small woman like myself, you may need to start out around 100. Then we go down and people say, okay, well, you know, ketosis for some people is 50 grams total carbs or lower a day. Where would you say 
and again, we're not suggesting anyone on insulin or with diabetes right now, go jump into this without your doctor's permission, of course, or any, or any doctor's consultation. But where do you say, what's your rough carb? Like, Hey, if you want to kind of start to look at this, this is the carb level I'm talking about. Well, I usually say 45 grams a day or less. And that's total carbs, right? You're not doing the net carbs. Mm -hmm. No, 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 no. That, so, you know, we look at, we, you know, when you're reading a label, it's carbohydrates minus fiber. So whatever that term, we, I never look at sugars. It's a useless sort of a tool, um, but total carbs minus fiber, whatever that number is, is the number we're going with. Now that's interesting because often Mark Sisson at Primal Blueprint always says, you know, we, we sort of don't even play that game. We just call it total. I guess, can you- No, that's, I don't think that's fair. Right, let's talk I, about that. You know, no, I like that. So let's get into why um, subtracting the fiber is really, truly important because you're going to get more for your money, right? <laughs> well, I mean, fiber is not absorbed by the human gut. It doesn't become carbohydrates in the body and it doesn't have, you know, it doesn't require insulin. So to, to, um, to add that in is not being fair to people that have to restrict it um, because, you know, there, we, fiber is a good thing to get in. In fact, I, you know, there's a, a nice study on people that do a low carb, you know, higher fat protein diet can actually have a negative change in their microbiome because, you know, fiber is the food of the microbiome and it changes into short chain fatty acids, which is one, the food for the colon and also can get systemic into the body and decrease you know, and help with glucose and insulin regulation. But, you know, to make, if you're already having to eat 45 grams a day and you're not removing the fiber content, then what you're going to be eating is a lot less carbs, Right. you know, and I don't think that's fair to people that are on that diet. <laughs> no, I hear you. I mean, it's almost like shortchanging. Yeah, it is. No, I get it. No, I'm glad we cleared that up. So if we're, if you're going to do that, then that's what, that's one way I, I like it. Um, it's interesting. So, so, okay. Below 45. Um, I mean, let, let me just clarify, let me clear. I'll clarify that number. My mentor was Dr. Richard Bernstein who wrote, uh, Dr. Bernstein's diabetes solution. And he was, he's a type one diabetic for about 65 years and is still in great health. Uh, you won't find anybody else along those lines. Uh, and he, you know, in his book, he said 30 grams of carbs. And, uh, now it's just that when you really have people, you know, monitor their diet and plug into pro, you know, programs to really analyze it, 30 is pretty strict. So I am, I see if people go up to 45, they can still achieve goals that we want, uh, which is really great glucose control bringing their A1C, which is a long-term monitoring tool, losing weight, feeling good, and so forth. So that's where I got that number from. What about protein levels? I mean, we know that overeating protein is also can be bad and um, can also affect glucose uh, if overeaten. But where are you with like, if we're looking at 45 grams of, of carbs a day, what are we looking at in terms of protein? Well, uh, protein does both the liver and the kidneys um, take protein, take amino acids, different amino acids in each organ, and, and turn them into glucose. 
in fact, the kidney produces quite a bit of glucose a day or, and also reabsorbs a lot of glucose. Uh, and the liver, of course, uh, is a huge organ as well. Um, but I usually, um, you know, the typical adult should have 0.8 grams per kilogram body weight, but I raise it to one gram per kilogram body weight because we do have to make up some calories that we're taking out with the carbs. And while we're also, of course, you know, uh, promoting fat, which they can have unlimited fat, they don't have to count that. Uh, having a little more protein, not a huge amount, but a little more really does work. Are you saying a gram of protein per kilogram of weight, not pound? So I'll have to do some measurement conversion. <laughs> well, if, if you take your weight, divide it by 2.2, that'll give you the kilograms. So oh, all right. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. One of the warning signs on all this stuff is hypoglycemia. That's kind of a little bit of a gateway on some of this, that things are out of control. What are some signs and symptoms that people need to look out for to go, I might, I might have an insulin resistance. I might be heading towards a bad situation here. Well, you know, in terms of hypoglycemia, you, um, there's, you know, there's a couple of oral hypoglycemic drugs that a type two patient might be on. And then of course there's insulin. Uh, otherwise, you know, pre-diabetic and diabetic patients on their own really won't have a significant hypoglycemic event. And even if they're on certain medications like metformin, you can't get a, any kind of significant low on metformin. But there are certain drugs like sulfonylureas, uh, the metiglinides, uh, and also a little bit with the sodium glucose transporter 2 inhibitors. Um, but in general, uh, people feel crappy having hypoglycemia by, you know, hypoglycemia is defined as blood sugar, you know, at or below 70. And most people, uh, you know, are going to start getting headachy and irritable and shaky. And if it keeps going down, you know, they might get sweaty uh, you know, there, especially if it's driven by, by a drug. I mean, I'm not saying that there's not reactive hypoglycemia that people who are very insulin sensitive have completely outside of prediabetes and diabetes. There is that. But for people with prediabetes or diabetes, uh, a, a good reaction is going to be medicate, you know, due to medication. Now, people with insulin can get this a lot because they're, you know, because they're told to eat a high carbohydrate diet and cover it with insulin. That's the axiom of diabetes care for our, our type one diabetics. And that is a futile endeavor designed to have nothing but highs and lows all day long. And, and not to mention all of the underlying inflammation and mismanagement happening with the drugs and, and also the diet that's not appropriate. But let's, I, I guess what I was trying to get at is Give us, if, if someone in life, whether they're overweight or not, what are some signs and symptoms that they might need to go get an HbA1c test or they might, you know, what are some warning signs to people Well, for, for diabetes in general, for type 2 diabetes? Well, I would say certainly if they're, you know, if they're, if they're overweight or obese, those are probably your first signs. If there's family affairs, fairly good family, you know, history, mom had diabetes, you know, grandpa had diabetes. Uh, that's a good sign. Um, if they're 
you know, but I mean, those are, if they're fasting, glucose is, you know, ideal fasting glucose, 80 to 85, uh, you know, milligrams per deciliter is what we're looking. If they're getting around, you know, if they're into the mid nineties, yeah, I'm going to be pulling, you know, seeing if there's a good A1C. So a lot of it is just, are they overweight? Are they obese? Is there family history? Are there other indicate? Do they have elevated triglycerides or just other things that on lab work might make you think, huh, you know, what's going on here? Or although it doesn't hurt for everybody, uh, uh, unless someone is super fit and eats super well, uh, you know, uh, they probably don't need to be checked for an A1C, but since 70% of our population is overweight or obese, I mean, it just makes sense to throw this into their yearly workup. Absolutely. Um, and people who are just struggling who might be working out and they feel like they're not getting anywhere, you know, aside from thyroid, another test is the HbA1c. It really just may be about carbohydrate uh, uh, situations. Um, what are, uh, what are some other things you'd love to share with our readers about this epidemic and, and what we might be able to relay to our loved ones or people that we know with this, uh, with this problem? I do think that it's important, you know, certainly with the environmental toxins, you know, people may not be aware that that exterminator, you know, spraying outside their house or got even worse inside their house or the agri-industry meat they're buying, or the plastics they're reheating their food in the microwave, or storing their food in, or drinking their water in, or, you know, so many things can have uh, estrogens and other, uh, and other persistent organic pollutants that are harming their body along these lines. Well, and I'm, I'm a victim of that myself because I had heavy metals. So, um, uh-huh. and, and, yes, and, heavy, even, you know, even the world health organization states that arsenic lead cause insulin resistance and diabetes. Yeah. I mean, I'm not, I'm not surprised it was a, a, all a factor in what I was dealing with and it really causes mitochondrial dysfunction as well, you know, and thyroid issues. So, you know, I guess it's a it's a good way to start off with. Everybody could use a nice, good clean out, can't we? And, and what what do you suggest on that? I mean, do you suggest everyone go and get tested initially for heavy metals, or is it like, hey, if all you can do now is this, what do you do? Clean up the diet, take some milk thistle. I mean, what are what are some of your recommendations aside from cleaning up? You know, not let's not put parabens on our skin, right? Let's try to eat organic. But other than those basics, what are some other uh, things we can look at? Well, I do think, you know, making sure the house is safe and clean, uh, you know, here in Montana, or I don't live in Montana anymore. I live in Arizona. You know, most people use exterminators and they don't know there's an organic guy in town. And, um, but you know, sweating is one of my first favorite things. Sweating has been shown medically to decrease or to excrete, I should say, to excrete from our bodies, heavy metals, environmental toxins. It's an amazing, what we call emunctory or, or detoxification. 
And so I really want people when they work out, dress so you sweat, get, you know, use saunas, whether buying one at home or in your gym, uh, you know, definitely things along these lines that starting with sweating, which a lot of Americans, you know, shy away from because of all the, you know, deodorant commercials and things <laughs> like that. Um, so I think that's a super important thing there. And also just making sure are people defecating every day? You know, that's another one. Are they eating or drinking, you know, things that harm their liver or their kidneys or, you know, so that we can keep those organs fresh as well? And there are supplements to help with livers, to help with kidneys, if if they're necessary. Uh, you mentioned milk thistle. Uh, you know, that's, that's good. I, I like, you know, alpha lipoic acid is one of my main supplements for people with diabetes. Yeah, I take it. I take it right now still. Um it's you know, uh, it's a great antioxidant. It's a, a liquid and water antioxidant. It can reduce insulin resistance. And of course, it can help not just protect the liver, but it's been shown in studies to protect the eyes, the kidneys, the nerves, the area of complications in people with diabetes or even pre-diabetes. Yeah, that's a good one. I, I I really believe in the sweating thing. I intentionally, when I found out I had heavy metals, I went and joined a gym that had a dry sauna and a steam room. Because even though I do work out and sweat that way, I wanted to uh, really give it an extra kick. And I've got to say, after many months of doing that, there is certainly a clearness and uh, almost undescribable. It's like one of those things where you have a symptom, but until it goes away, you didn't know you had it, that kind of thing. And I have to say that I, I kind of swear by it now myself too, and feel like it's a, definitely going to be a part of my life, if not um, regularly, but definitely in times when you, you need to kind of do a cleanup. Yeah, it is super important. I'm yeah, good. I'm glad you're most gyms. I think do have a sauna, you know, just teaching people to not stay in too long. And it's always important to end with a 30 or 60 minute cold shower. Yeah. Like uh, to get, yeah. To get your adrenals back up. That's a, that's a great, yeah. I mean, that's something that everyone can do, right? So even if you're yeah. inactive, even if you're overweight and you don't, and you can't even think about working out or you've got a bad knee, you know, you could start to clean up the diet and do some daily sauna and steam room and shower it off and, and just start there. Right. I mean, um, yeah. you know, you might have to join a gym to get that sauna, but it doesn't mean you have to get on the bike. Right. So there's a lot you can do without having to change your whole entire routine right away. Um, I love all of the you you really lock in so much here. This really is, it really is a, a, the most comprehensive book I've looked at on diabetes because it's covering both one and two, what tests to get, all these injectables, how they work, uh, certain dietary situations. I mean, you really have put your heart and soul into this. Tell us, how can people work with you? How do you work with patients? Um, well, I I work with patients, obviously, in person and through uh, Zoom, which is a HIPAA-certified video conferencing software. Uh, so uh, my website is a oh, is, is drmorstein.com. Uh, that is an easy website, and uh, you can get a lot of information on there. Uh, so yeah, drmorstein, M-O-R-S-T-E-I-N.com. 
So we will put your website in the show notes for everyone to click on. But I wanted to ask you one last question, which is, you know, let, I, I want to hear about some success stories. You know, let's take either a worst case scenario, mismanaged, you know, type one diabetic who figured it out and is living a happy life or someone who got off insulin as a type two diabetic. I mean, give us a, give us a couple of 180s that you've experienced in your practice. Well, yeah, you know, I've worked with one type one patient uh, and, um, I think I've been working with her for 13 or so years, 14 years. I, A1C always tends to be around five, one to five, four. Uh, she got pregnant as a type one and she had a fantastic pregnancy, great control of her diabetes. And you have to watch that because, um, uh, because of the you you become really insulin resistant during pregnancy that's there's you know we become very insulin resistant during pregnancy well that's women but men and women in their pubescent years and adolescence are naturally insulin resistant so those are the two times when it's natural for us to be insulin resistant. So if you're type one diabetic, you know, we had to monitor her increased need of insulin while maintaining good control during her pregnancy. And she, ha and then of course there's labor and, and the problems that occur in that regard, but she did great with me and she has a beautiful little boy and uh, you know, so under, if you follow the program, you know, regular life and pregnancy, all different ways of life can be well managed. Excellent. And, and what about, uh, we can find your book on Amazon and also your website. Yeah, apparently it seems to be as, uh, uh the, the best-selling book on diabetes on Amazon right now. Uh, congratulations. Yeah. I'm not surprised everybody listening. This is really something you should get for everyone, you know, who, might be suffering with this or, or maybe just got diagnosed um, and needs to take a, a deeper look. Uh, I so appreciate your time. Love your work. Uh, thank you so much for this contribution because as we talked about earlier, you know, what we get from the government and doctors and pharmaceutical companies is not necessarily the best, the best avenue and the best path. Is there anything else you'd like to leave our audience with? Today. Yeah, I would say, you know, uh, in terms of the book, you know, you've been explaining it great. You know, it has a lot all these, um, we have these, um, I, in the low carb diabetes association, which is again, lowcarbdiabetes.org, which is free for anybody to join. We have what's called the eight essentials, which is, um, diet, uh, exercise, sleep, stress management, healing the gut, environmental toxicity, uh, supplementation and medication. And all of those are gone over really well in the book on how, in terms of diabetes, as well as complications and how to reverse them and pregnancy and kids. And, uh, you know, it, you know, it, I, it, it, covers yeah. it really is. I mean, your, your tagline saying a comprehensive, it's like the most comprehensive. So I, I really applaud you for that because, you know, a lot of these books, you can look at theory and kind of wrap your head around the concept, but it's not giving you detailed information on really how to solve it. So I, I commend you for that. Um, thank you so much, Dr. Mona Morstein, Master Your Diabetes, a comprehensive integrative approach to type 1 and type 2. Thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you very much, Al. That was terrific. Thank you. So Chris Kelly, Nourish, Balance, Thrive, we're, we're talking about health and you're telling me a funny story about your picky four-year-old daughter that won't eat unless there's Primal Kitchen uh, condiments on the table. 
it's true. My daughter will not eat unless there's f***ing the primal kitchen wilder. <laughs> it's, it's this cute thing, actually, she does. We have a local state park called Wilder Ranch. Oh, yeah. And uh, she calls the ranch dressing Wilder Ranch dressing. Which <laughs> we, 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 there's no way we're going to correct her on that. It's just too it's so, so endearing. Uh, how old um, is she? She's four. Oh my god! So she likes like the mayo on. Oh yeah, she so she loves those. So we love them as well. We have uh, we we eat them all the time. We eat the mayo. We eat the balsamic. We eat the the ranch. Um, the avocado oil we use all the time, and, and so you know that's completely genuine. And I don't mind talking about that because you took the pain in the ass out of condiments. I really appreciate that. What an authentic spot from Chris Kelly at Nourish Balance Thrive. And yes, Primal Kitchen, you can call it Wilder Ranch Dressing if you want. <laughs> and uh, we'll send five cents of the proceeds over to that beautiful state park because they're, they're trying to make ends meet in Santa Cruz Mountains. Thank you very much, Chris. <laughs> That's my pleasure.